Welcome to the holiday season. Welcome to the Christmas season. We can officially say that now. I know some of the stories have been telling you that since October, but uh, we're here now, right? We're past Halloween. We're past uh, Thanksgiving. We, we're past the Christmas parade. Uh, we're officially into the month of December, so Merry Christmas. We can actually say this now. As we get into this, this season, um, this, this time of year, uh, we're going to start this new series today called Christmas Unplugged. And over the next few weeks, what we're going to do is just talk about how we can take a step back, kind of like, like Jay said earlier, take a step back and kind of unplug from the craziness and the chaos of Christmas. Because for a lot of people, Christmas is their favorite time of the year. How many would say that this morning? Christmas is your favorite time of the year. Okay, be honest, how many of you kind of dread this time of the year? Some of you raised your hands twice. That's okay. <laughs> I guess. Some of you from the same family raised your hands twice, so <laughs> not pointing any fingers or looking in any specific directions right now, but, but it's, it's, it's a crazy chaotic time of the year, especially if you've got kids that are involved in things because there's Christmas programs and Christmas parties and, and Christmas this and Christmas that. It's an expensive time of the year. I mean, not only do we have all the shopping that we're going to talk about throughout the course of uh, the rest of this morning, but we have Christmas cookies we have to buy and Christmas decorations we have to buy and all of this stuff. And as a result of that, Christmas just becomes kind of a very stressful time of the year. So over the next few weeks, we're just going to talk about how we can unplug and step back from all of that and refocus ourselves this holiday season. Today, specifically, we're going to talk about spending. We're going to talk about how we just get carried away this time of the year. Curious how many of you, we had Black Friday now a little over a week ago, how many of you are finished with your Christmas shopping? Okay. How many of you, how many of you have not started your Christmas shopping? I'm really glad I'm not the only one. So, Actually, a few weeks ago, a few years ago, this statistic changed. Black Friday had always been the busiest shopping day of the year in the U.S. You know what it is now? The Saturday before Christmas. Because there's a lot of people, just like me, who wait until the last minute, and they go see what's still left in the stores, and, oh, that's good enough. Let's buy that and take it and go home. So the Saturday before Christmas has actually passed Black Friday. But spending the last few years has just gotten ridiculous here in our country. In fact, the estimates this year for 2018, Christmas spending, meaning from Thanksgiving through December 25th, Christmas spending is expected this year to top $1 trillion in the U.S. You know how much a trillion is? It's a thousand billion. <laughs> it's a million million. That's how much a trillion is. That's a lot of money. In fact, retailers will say that 30% of all of their income and all of their intake over the course of the 12-month year is in this one-month period. 30% of our spending as Americans takes place in this one month. 50% of those, those purchases are made online. Now, I'm an online shopper. I love to shop and not have to put shoes on. That works great for me. Um, this, this stat kind of blew me away. Last year, Americans spent $5 million on their pets. On their cats and their dogs, they spent $5 million. Some of you, I think, contributed to that. I don't know. It's, there's some people going, yeah, that's, that's reasonable. I can see that. Gift cards are a big thing. I kind of like gift cards because I've yet to get a gift card that didn't fit right. Okay? I've yet to get a gift card where I thought, this isn't my color, you know? 
51% of men, 66% of women prefer gift cards. Here's the crazy thing about gift cards. A couple years ago, almost $200 billion was spent for Christmas gifts on gift cards. And when they, they came back after the holidays and they surveyed everybody who received one, they found out that 27% of the people who got a gift card didn't spend all the money on it. Retailers estimated that $8 billion was wasted on unused gift cards. Just think about that for a second. Think about the amount of monies that we are, are throwing at Christmas gifts. Uh, the average family last year, the average American family, meaning a, a couple or a household unit, spent $900 on Christmas. That peaked in 2001 at, at just over 1000 It bottomed out after the recession. In 2009, it was under $500, but it's been on a steady climb ever since. Many, many American households spent well over $1,000 on Christmas gifts. Uh, it, it's staggering, the amount of money that gets spent on Christmas each year. My wife and I kind of, kind of debate and argue about this a little bit. I'm one who would rather go a little more low-key, not buy a lot of presents uh, for, for kids and for family. She likes to spend money on, on our kids and our family uh, just because it's one of those, uh, uh, giving is one of her love languages. She loves to give, loves to, to help others. And I remember last year in particular, I said, you know, I know you love to give. I'd rather not give as much. Uh, I'm the man of the house. I make the decisions here. We aren't going to spend that much. So we compromised and we spent more. Um, <coughs> and um, blessed, you know, everybody. So. But what happens when we get caught up? And some of you know this. We get caught up in the spending. Where does a lot of that spending come from? A credit card. And that can start to snowball. And more and more Americans are going into debt to buy for Christmas. And here's what's, what's amazing to me is when you start stacking up credit card debt, very quickly you can get to an uncomfortable limit on what you've spent and charged on a credit card. And all of a sudden now, if, if you just pay the minimum payments, you're taking a couple of years to pay off a month's worth of purchasing. And then, hey, guess what? Christmas is coming next year too. And it's going to continue to compound. So what I want to do today, just over the next few minutes, is just talk about this, about how we need to step back from what culture and society is telling us that we need to do, look at what the Bible has to say about stuff, and about spending, and about kind of all of this together, because what we're seeing more and more, you, see, you already see the commercials out there, culture, society tells us we need these things. I mean, how many of you have seen the commercials where uh, somebody gets one of the Alexa things and, and, boy, their life is just so much better because they have this little Alexa thing or, or somebody gets the new car. Has anybody ever actually bought their spouse a car for Christmas? We see this. I've never actually seen somebody get one for Christmas, but in the commercials, man, they are happy. <laughs> if my wife bought me a car for, for, for Christmas, I know where that money came from, so, I mean... <laughs> unless she won the lottery and didn't tell me. I don't know. So, I mean, but culture tells us we need more. So what I want to do is just step back and kind of look at that this morning. And there's two major big things we can keep in mind when it comes to fighting this temptation. Here's the first one. The first rule is this. Ignore what culture says about needing more. Culture's going to tell us that we need more, that it's going to make your life better if you have this. Uh, all the way from kids' toys all the way up to cars. We see it on every commercial. Everybody who gets something, their life is now better because of what they got. And so we need to, to fight this. We need to fight th this thought that culture tells us that we need more. Here's what it says in Romans chapter 2. It says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, 
but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now obviously this verse has got so much more depth than just talking about materialism and, and culture telling you that you need more. But we can take it at its surface level and it's very clear to us that we need to, uh, to not listen to what culture has to say. We need to not listen to what society has to say when it comes to getting more. Because there are three lies that culture is going to tell you. There are three things that society is going to tell you when it comes to acquiring more things. Here's the first lie that culture is going to tell you, that having more will make you happy. You'll tell yourself, it'll make me happy to have this. I'd love to have this. Again, have you ever seen a commercial where somebody gets something and they're upset about it? They're happy. You're happy to open presents, to see what's inside there. You go back to Ecclesiastes and you read what Solomon had to say about this. Solomon, the richest, wisest person of all time, had everything that he could ever possibly have wanted. And here's what he says, Ecclesiastes 5. He says, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? If, if you're unfamiliar with Ecclesiastes, again, Solomon had everything. And over and over, he's like, you know what? I look back at it, this is pretty meaningless. All this stuff is meaningless. None of this stuff has actually really fulfilled me and made me happy. And as I've gotten a little older, I've realized this too. One thing I don't like about getting people gifts is I know that I'm giving them something that's eventually gonna get thrown away. I mean, it may be years from now, but eventually it's going to get thrown away because it's temporary. And here's what you need to know about temporary things. Temporary things lead to temporary happiness. We've got a stack of toys. I mean, a massive stack of toys from our girls in our bedroom right now. They don't even notice they're gone. I mean, that, that's kind of how much stuff that they've acquired and accumulated. They don't even notice that, that it's not in their room. If, if we got rid of it, they'd probably never miss it. And, and that, I thought about that with, with toys or with other gifts I've, I've given to people. You give somebody uh, an electronic, you give them a new iPhone, guess what? In two years, it's obsolete. They need a new one. They need to upgrade because... That's just how it works. Temporary things lead to temporary happiness. This hit me a couple of years ago because I sat and, and thought about it one day. Man, every single thing that I own, one of these days is going to get thrown away. Everything I have, my house, one of these days is going to get old and decrepit and get knocked down and they'll build something new. My cars, one of these days, are going to wind up in a junk heap. Uh, my clothes, as ridiculously fashionable as they are right now, <laughs> one of these days, nobody will want to wear them anymore. All of my stuff that I spend so much time and effort and energy acquiring and wanting is just here to help me today. And tomorrow, I'll need something else. I'll need the next thing coming along. So society will tell you that more stuff will make you happy. Here's what else society will tell you, that having more stuff will make you important. Uh, again, go back to those new cars. Those new cars help make you feel important. Those new toys make you feel important. Uh, Jesus had something to say about this in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. I'm talking about making you feel important. Um, one of my biggest struggles is this thought of contentment. I've told you guys this before. I struggle with being content with what I have because I'll, I'll find contentment and then I'll go to somebody's house and see what they have. Like, oh, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Man, look at all this stuff he's got. Look, look, at, look at those golf clubs that he's got. Man, look at that, that shotgun that he's got. Look at his truck he's driving. I, I start thinking that. 
And because he has this, man, he's, he's doing pretty well. He's important. When we were in Southern California a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> please don't judge me when I tell you the story. <laughs> but we were going through the car rental process and looking at the prices, you know, trying to be smart with what we got, trying to compare uh, to get a reasonable car. And um, we're looking at all the, the websites, all of the, the companies, and uh, the prices were higher than I was expecting. And I actually found a deal, again, don't judge me on this, because this actually saved us money, but I found a deal, and we got to rent an Audi A4 for the four days we were there. If you don't know about Audis, they're like Mercedes. I mean, they're, they're a nice car. And again, it cost less than comparable, more reasonable cars did. But we're driving this car around, and, and, and uh, you know, as the staff were down there, and as we're driving this Audi around, we're like, hey, we're in an Audi. Get this Honda out of my way, okay? Come on. We're important. We're in a nice car get out of the road. You, know, you can't park there. That's where I want to park in, in my important Audi, okay? We think this. This is an easy trap. The more we have, the more important we are. The better we have, the more important we are because we're doing well. People can see us and they can see all the things that we have. And this is a dangerous trap to fall into. This is a dangerous mindset. And again, I, I struggle with this. I struggle with the, the concept of contentment at times. But that's a lie that society is going to tell us. The more we have, the more important we are. Here's the third lie that society is going to tell us, that the more we have, it'll make me feel more secure. Because now I have enough, I can take care of myself. I don't have to rely on anybody else. I'm partly this way because I hate borrowing stuff from somebody. Because it seems like every time I borrow something, something goes wrong with it. I, I borrowed stuff from my stepdad, and it seemed like every time I did something broke, and it was one of those things that wasn't my fault, but I happened to have it when it broke. So, of course, you know, I mean, I, his lawnmower twice, like a belt snapped, something else broke. Not, it if he would have been on it, but I happened to be the one on it. So I feel bad. Hey, Bob, this happened again, you know, and you don't want to rely on people. You want to take care of it yourself. Jesus had a very clear thing to say about that in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew uh, chapter 6, whoa. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is is talking about how we worry about stuff, how we have things that that cause us to to worry at times. And here's what he says. He says, don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. Push pause for just a second. If you've got a Bible, underline that. Because that hit me this week. As I'm rereading this, this is a passage I've read dozens and dozens and dozens of times. That one line jumped out and hit me more than it ever has. Worrying about these things, those dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. Then he goes on. Uh, he, he says, Your heavenly Father already knows all of your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything that you need. We get caught up in what we think we need, what we think that we know that we need, but in reality, God knows this better than we do. And what God wants is for us to trust him. Again, if I have everything and I don't need anything from anybody else, I really don't need community. I don't need to rely on anybody. I I, I can just take care of things myself. And and again, guys especially, we can really get caught up in this because we want to be that, you know, kind of protector, that provider, that hunter-gatherer mindset, so to speak. I don't want my family to have to worry about things. I'll take care of it. We say this. And it's not a terrible attitude. I'd rather have that than one that doesn't care about my family, you know. But we get this mindset. I'll take care of my family. I'll take care of my friends. I'm, I've got it. I'm in control. And God's like, no, you're not. I am. And I want you to rely on me. 
You, you go back to Acts chapter 2, that first church, everything they had, they shared it with each other. Everything they had, they basically brought it and put it in a big store saying, hey, you know what? This is mine. Take it and use it. When you're done, bring it back so somebody else can take it and use it. They shared everything. They had everything in common, and nobody was ever in need. It's the power of that community. So more stuff, you, you, you get that lie of, if I have all this, I don't need anything else, I'll be secure. We have to be very careful with those lies. Because those lies trickle in, and they are very easy to buy into without realizing you're doing it. Uh, again, who doesn't like to get new stuff? Who isn't happy to get something new? Who, who, who doesn't feel a little sense of pride because you're driving a new car, you're wearing a new shirt? You have kind of that sense of pride, like, hey, look at this. I, I want you to see this. I'm wearing it today. I want you to see it. We, we catch into those lies so easily. Church, I need you to hear me on this. We don't need more stuff. We just need more God. We don't need more stuff. We need more God. As we get into this time of the year, this is the Advent season, and we don't always mention the Advent season, but as we get into this season, Advent is all about waiting on your Messiah, waiting on your Savior. Just like the, the, the Jewish people did for 400 years of, of silence, waiting on their Messiah. And what happened? He came, and he didn't come like they were expecting. As we get into this year, I would just challenge you, encourage you, church, to stop worrying and start waiting and quit trying to take care of it and fix it and fulfill it yourself. Because as we do that, we embrace what it means to follow God. We embrace what it means to trust God. And if you call yourself a Christian, if you, if you are, are a believer and you are saved, you are part of something more than just the world. You are part of, of the people of God. Here's what Peter addresses the people of God as, 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. I'm going to pause on that for just a second before I go on, because I want you to look at that again. And this is what it says about you. If you're a follower, this is what it says about you. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Verse 10, he says, Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When it comes to stuff, we need to learn how we can trust in what we can't see as opposed to what we can I can, I can trust in myself and I can trust in, in my stuff and those people right around me because I can see all that. I can touch and feel all that. I can, can hear it and taste it and smell it. It appeals to my five senses. But God doesn't always because I don't always see God, at least not in front of me. Sometimes I have to look backwards to see God. I don't always hear God. I've, I've told you this. I've never actually audibly heard the voice of God. I, I've never felt him reach out and touch me. I've never, you know, never had those senses. But when I look back through the rearview mirror, I see all the times God was there. I see all the times he was there with me. And sometimes I actually look back and say, oh, that was the voice of God I was hearing. Didn't realize it at the time. But God is there. And the more I can learn to trust in him and less in myself, the more I can start ignoring those lies of society. And here's kind of what I've learned, too. 
if you want to ignore those lies, if you want to get past those lies that society and culture tells you about needing more stuff, here's how we can do that. Here's just a couple of simple little tips and tools on how we can get past that. The first one is this, that we need to resist the temptation to compare ourselves to others. Again, this is, this is one I can get guilty of. I show up, oh man, look at that new truck. Man, I'm still driving my old trailblazer. You know, we, we, we get guilty of comparing. Social media makes this even worse at times. Here's what uh, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians. He says, we dare not to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. I think we could all think of somebody who measures himself by himself and compares himself to himself. But let's be honest, maybe that's us. Maybe we're doing that very same thing. We're measuring who we are by what we have or measuring who we are by everybody else around us. And here's the problem when you get to comparing what you have to everybody else. When you're obsessed with what everybody else has, you can't see what God has blessed you with. When you're comparing yourself with everybody else, you can't see the wonderful things God has put in front of you in store for your life. Here's a second tip we can do. You can rejoice in what you do have. Rejoice in what you do have. This one is impossible if you're comparing yourself to others. Because again, this is where I sometimes get myself in trouble. I, I look and I've got just this mountain of blessings. And I can sit around and I can be sitting in my own home and look around and go, I've got it pretty good. Until I go to somebody else's place, like, oh, I don't have it this good. And then I start doing that comparison game. And all of a sudden, what I have isn't good enough anymore. And now... I am having a hard time rejoicing in that. Hebrews 13.5 says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. What does he not say here? He doesn't say, God says, Don't worry about it. You're good. There's nothing that's ever going to go wrong. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say, Hey, don't worry about it. You will never, ever be tempted to want anything ever again. You'll never look and see and say, oh, they've got it so much better. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Meaning, whatever happens in your life, you have God. And, and sometimes that's hard to see. Sometimes because we don't see or hear or feel God, we forget the fact that he's right there with us. And we're going through a tough situation in life with health or with finances or, or whatever it might be. Maybe there's a, a family dispute going on and you're stuck in that. And you're going, God, where are you? Why aren't you here pulling me out of this? And he's right there. He's right there beside you. And I think if we're very, very honest, this isn't a fun answer to hear, but if we're very honest, you may say, well, why am I in this situation to begin with? Maybe for just a split second, you took your eyes off God. And instead of looking to him, you look to yourself or to somebody around you to try and fix your situation. And I mean, it, it could have just been like that. Just a momentary lapse. We all do it. And in that moment, now you're stuck. Now you're stuck in this spot and you've got to look to God again to try and get out of it. But again, he's always there, whether you realize it or not. I heard a story from a friend of mine, a couple that's a little bit older than we are. Uh, but they tried for years to get pregnant. Never could. Just time and time, they went through all of it. Nothing. Prayer after prayer, unanswered, they couldn't. Finally, they get pregnant. And then she loses the baby. And I'm telling the story about this. 
He said, after they got the news, another couple came over to their house, uh, some friends of theirs, Kyle and and Lisa, some good friends of ours too. And he said, I don't remember a single thing that they said that whole night. But he said, I remember that they were there. And that they were there, and they said, we're going to walk through this with you. And God does that same thing. You may not hear a word God's saying. He's right there with you, walking with you through the hard time. Walking with you through what you don't have, especially when you're looking and seeing what everybody else does have. Here's a third tip we can do, I think, to avoid falling into that temptation. We can return our first 10% back to God. Like, oh good, it's Christmas and we're going to talk about tithing because I've got the money for that right now. Here's the thing on tithing, and I'm not going to get too deep into all this right now, but I want to just, just kind of state this off the top. Tithing is not about your money. Tithing is about your faith. And I don't come out here and say this, and you're like, oh, that's just slick preacher talk. No, that's not what it's about. It is not about how much money you give to this church. It's about how much of your heart you give to God. Because finances, let's be very honest, outside of your kids, finances is probably the number one thing in your life. The number one most precious thing, because we need money for everything. We need money for everything that we do these days. So without it, it's really hard to function. And so to let go of that is difficult. But if you can trust God with it, you can trust God with anything. And again, this isn't a ploy for me to to poke at you so you open up the, the checkbooks and give us a bigger check today. I'll be very honest. We don't need your money. As the church, we don't need your money. You know why? Because God doesn't need us. God spoke and the world happened. He doesn't need my mediocre creative ability. I can be very clear with that. He doesn't need my leadership or my organization or, or what. He doesn't need whatever gifts I have. He spoke and the world came into existence. But he invites me along on the journey with him. And he invites you on the journey with him. And he invites the church on the journey with him. And God can bless us and he can bless this world in ways that we can't imagine. So when you give us a check as the church, that allows us to do more. And that allows us, every time I I pray for offering, I I make the prayer, God, stretch this beyond anything we can come up with because we're not that smart. We're not that good. But God will stretch it beyond what we can imagine and fathom and dream because he's God. So when you give that first 10% back to God, let me be very clear, it is not about your finances, it's about your faith. God doesn't care about your money, God wants your heart. And when you're able to do that, you're able to trust him more, to grow in your faith. And I'm not just talking about tithing here to the church, I'm talking about giving to anything that's going to bless God. Giving to a mission in town or overseas, uh, giving to a program that's going to invest in the lives of people, that's going to help to further the kingdom of God. That's what it's all about when it comes to tithing. And you may be like, well, I've been tithing for years. I've, I've been going along, I've been giving 10%. Cool, you know what? Give more next year. Up it. I, I'm reading more and more stories about, about longtime followers of God who are daring God to outgive them. Rick Warren, a famous pastor in Southern California, he tithes 93% of his income. And he said, each year I keep challenging God and daring God that I can outgive him, and each year he beats me by a mile. Challenge him. Test him. Test your faith and see how you're blessed and see how others are blessed because of you. Because the more you give, the more that's going to impact those around you. 
to resist that temptation, to listen to society that tells you you need more, you have to have more, fight that temptation. Here's the second major thing that we can do if we want to avoid that temptation to need more, if we want to avoid what culture and society has to tell us, is that we remember the true reason we celebrate. That we remember the true reason for Christmas that we celebrate. If you uh, have been in church much of your life, you know this story. If you haven't been, I want to share this story with you. If you've got a Bible, you can follow along. If not, I just want you to listen. Luke chapter 2 is the reason we celebrate. Luke chapter 2, it says this, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census would be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house in the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who he was pledged to be married to and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, uh, to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things in her heart and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had just heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. As we dive into this season more and more, my, my challenge, my encouragement to you would be to always remember that season and that reason. To always step back from everything that's going on to remember that. Many years ago, a pastor by the name of Phillips Brooks uh, was caught up in, in ministry and, and like so many pastors, reached a state of just stress and a little bit of burnout and needed to take a break and did what so many pastors do in that same situation. He went to his church and said, I need a, I need a short sabbatical. I need to go out and recharge, refresh, and come back stronger. And specifically, he wanted to take his sabbatical in the Holy Lands. So his church gave him a break. He went to Jerusalem. He was amazed to see Jerusalem, to follow it, to walk in the footsteps of Jesus, to see where his Lord and Savior had been. But he was also amazed at how modern the city had become. And he wondered how unrecognizable it would be now to those who were there when Jesus was there. But he went to Bethlehem, which is about six miles outside of Jerusalem. He saw all that area there in Bethlehem. But the one area he really wanted to see was the field where the shepherds watched their flocks that night. And it's still a very well-known field over there. You can go see it today. It's actually still relatively undeveloped. There's city all around it, but it's still relatively undeveloped 2,000 years later. And to his amazement when he went there, 
there were still shepherds in that field watching their sheep. They were there throughout the day and into the evening. And he was just amazed at how modern this city had become, yet in that spot and in that moment, it's like time had stood still. And they were able to step back and still do the things that they had always done. He got back to the States and got plugged back into his church and got working again. And he sat down to write what he thought about what he had seen while he was over there. And he wrote this poem, which later became a song that you all know very, very well. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above. While mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wandering love. O morning stars together, proclaim the holy birth, and praises sing to God the King, and peace to men on earth. O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born to us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. Over 150 years ago, and he was caught up in the modernization of the world then. We think we're the first ones to get that. It's been going on since the time of Jesus. And yet, in the midst of all the modernization of the 1860s, he was able to pause and to see that truth. And in the midst of all the modernization and the craziness of the 2010s, we can do the same thing. We can step back and unplug, and we can see the true original story for what Christmas is all about. As we get into this season, I want to challenge you. Look outside of yourself this year. When you spend this holiday season, stretch your dollars beyond yourself, beyond your immediate family. We've got a great opportunity to do that right here. Just behind this wall, there's a Christmas tree. It's got tags on it. Those tags represent families who can't provide for their families this Christmas. So take one. I think there was about 45 tags on it this year. That's almost double what we did last year. And, and you notice there's a string of empty lights on that tree. Every time you bring a gift back, we put a bulb in it. And as all those bulbs come back, that tree's going to light up. I would love to not wait till Christmas to light the tree up. I would love next Sunday to have the tree completely lit up. Not for our benefit, because that means we are helping others. We're investing in others. We're touching the lives of others this year. There's other ways to do that, obviously, too. You, you can find somebody who's lonely this Christmas, a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, doesn't have somebody with them. Invite them over. Take them out to, to dinner or to coffee. Spend time with them. Invest your resources, your, your money, your time, and your talents in the lives of others this holiday season. But let, let's learn to step out of this, this rat race cycle of just spending to spend. Let's invest. Instead of spending in the temporary things, let's invest in the eternal. Let's invest our, our resources into the lives of the eternity of others this holiday season. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful. Lord, we're so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful that he came to us as the perfect gift. God, not the gift that we wanted at the time, not, not, the, not the conquering king on the white horse coming in, but God, the gift we needed, the perfect gift that we needed, this humble little child, this, this person who gave up their kingly rights to come and be like one of us. God, I pray today that as, as we 
plunge into this, this holiday season, Lord, you would always keep us mindful of that. Always keep us mindful of the thought that you brought us the perfect gift at the perfect time. Lord, that we would continue to wait on you. We wouldn't take matters into our own hands. We wouldn't get caught up in what we're hearing. We wouldn't conform to this world. But Lord, that we would continue to walk with you. Lord, that you would be what we desire. You would be what we crave. And that sharing you with others, God, that would be what we strive for as well. God, we're so thankful for Jesus. We're so thankful for that gift. We pray in his name. Amen.